0: You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes. Clinical Professor of Medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System.
1: A new paradigm for the treatment of type 2 diabetes is emerging. How do we successfully manage our patients with this very common condition? Joining us to discuss the new paradigm for the treatment of type 2 diabetes is Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas. Dr. Ralph DeFranzo. Dr. DeFranzo, welcome to Reach MD. Glad to be with you here, Steve. Ralph, let's just start off with the basics. I mean, things have changed so much. Take us from what we knew about the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes uh, approximately 10 years ago to where we are now.
2: <clears throat> Good way to start. When I gave the Lilly Lecture in 1987, uh, I referred to the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes as the uh, triumvirate. We knew that there was insulin resistance in liver, uh, we knew that there was insulin resistance in muscle, and we also knew uh, that there was beta cell dysfunction. Now, early in the natural history of the disease, the insulin resistance in muscle is very, very well uh, established. But as long as the beta cell can secrete sufficient amounts of insulin to overcome the insulin resistance, glucose tolerance remains normal. However, as the beta cell starts to fail, the insulin resistance in uh, liver starts to become manifest by an excessive production of the glucose throughout the sleeping hours, leading to an increase in fasting glucose. And then following a the meal, there's an excessive rise in the post-meal glucose uh, because of insulin resistance uh, in uh, muscle. So the pathophysiology was, I think, pretty simple, straightforward, and these three defects still represent the core defects in type 2
1: diabetes. Well, Ralph, a lot of things have changed. You know, when I was a fellow, we, you know, I did glucose clamp studies, which you developed, uh, measuring measuring insulin resistance and beta cell function, and that was pretty much the main standard of measuring uh, defects in type 2 diabetes. So, based on your ominous octet, how has how have our research strategies changed?
2: Well, the The insulin clamp in which insulin is infused and radioisotopes are used to measure glucose uptake remain the gold standard for looking at insulin uh, action. We've also developed techniques uh, that we can uh, uh, raise the uh, blood sugar level by a constant amount and uh, uh, look uh, at the amount of insulin uh, which is secreted to evaluate beta cell function using the euglycemic insulin clamp technique. We've learned how to use these techniques in combination with muscle biopsy so we can look at a variety of uh, metabolic biochemical pathways. Uh, We can look at genes and their expression, both the messenger RNA and the protein uh, in the muscle and liver for these genes that uh, are dysregulated uh, in diabetics. We've developed incredible magnetic resonant imaging technology to actually look within organs, you can look within the brain, we can look within the liver, we can look within the muscle, uh to trace metabolic pathways that have gone awry uh in uh our diabetic patients. So we've developed a lot of very, very sophisticated, some moderately invasive, some completely non invasive techniques to give us uh, a, a look within the cells in the body uh, as to what really is responsible for these abnormalities in type 2 diabetes.
1: And that's really interesting. I wanted to get a brief uh, response on any idea on the chronology of these defects. You know, Which one comes first? Do they come together? I know you can't really answer that uh, 100%.
2: Well I think it's pretty clear that the insulin resistance precedes all the other abnormalities. And we know that uh, by studying uh, children who are born with two diabetic parents. and these individuals, these children, uh, have a, a 70 to 80% chance of developing diabetes in life. And we study them when they're young and lean and have perfectly normal glucose tolerance. And what we can show is that these kids are already insulin resistant. This is the uh, genetic component uh, of the disease. In fact, they're as insulin resistant as their diabetic parents. But they maintain normal glucose tolerance because their beta cells are able to secrete uh, very robust amounts of insulin. But uh, the beta cell that has to go through life continuously secreting these very large amounts of insulin starts to fail. And then when the beta cell starts to fail, then we see the uh, the, uh, onset of overt, uh, you know, both fasting and postprandial hyperglycemia.
1: That that's super interesting and I think so that's you know that's something that I think many uh, diabetes research have have thought for many years it really starts quite early is insulin resistance and of course you don't pick up any clinical defects uh, until much later on Well if you're just joining us you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on Reach MD XM160 the channel for medical professionals I am Dr. Steven Edelman and I am speaking with Dr. Ralph Defronzo we are discussing the new paradigm for treatment of type 2 diabetes. Ralph, we've talked a lot about the new pathophysiologic defects, but let's use the remainder of the show to talk about therapy. Uh, Certainly, a lot of things have changed from... maximizing sulfonylurea. The patient begs for three years when they're out of control. No, they don't want the needle, and then you got to force to use insulin. Uh, we know that the ADA has their treatment consensus algorithm, which which uh, some of things I like on it, some of things I don't. What are some of your thoughts on treating diabetes and maybe focusing theri- therapy towards many of these defects that you've outlined so
3: elegantly? Yeah, I
2: think worthwhile just uh, reviewing briefly what the ADA algorithm is. Basically, the ADA algorithm says you'd start with lifestyle, which of course is great, weight loss, exercise, and metformin. Uh, If that doesn't do the job, uh, they really uh, recommend uh, you go uh, to sulfonylureas as the next drug of choice, and then uh, they open things up to a variety of options uh, after metformin and sulfonylureas fail, but they tend to push you to insulin therapy. Now, this is recapitulating exactly what Robert Turner showed in the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study not to work. And what Dr. Turner did in, did in the 15 year UK PDS study was, in fact, start people either on metformin or sulfonylurea. The people started on metformin had had SU added. People started on issues, had metformin added. And what Dr. Turner showed over this 15-year study, that neither metformin nor sulfonylureas preserve beta cell function in these newly diagnosed type 2 diabetics, and that there was a progressive rise in A1c that was totally associated with a progressive decline in beta cell function. So it seems to me we have two problems. We have this genetic uh, problem of insulin resistance, which is there. It's putting a big stress on our beta cells and the beta cells then start to fail. So my approach would be to start with multiple drugs right from the beginning to attack both of these problems. So I like insulin sensitizers, and I particularly like uh, TZDs. My preference is pioglitazone over rosiglitazone because it has a better lipid profile, and I like to combine it with uh, metformin. Because you're using insulin sensitizers, you don't uh, uh, get uh, hypoglycemia, And both uh, P-L-glitazone and proactive and Metformin and UK PDS were shown to decrease cardiovascular events. Now, I also initiate triple therapy with P-L-glitazone, Metformin, and exenotide because I really want to preserve what little beta cell function that's left in my diabetic patients. We know that by the time you're in the upper uh, third of IGT, you've lost 75 to 80% of your beta cell function. So you really need to hone in on this abnormality very aggressively. Exenatide and the TZDs are the two classes of drugs which have been shown to preserve beta cell function. Furthermore, exenatide does not cause hypoglycemia. Uh, So once the glucose comes to normal, it stops kicking out insulin. So this triple combination therapy really is attacking the basic pathophysiology. And you can titrate these drugs up to their maximum doses and really not have to worry so much uh, about hypoglycemia. Moreover, the exenatide blocks any of the weight gain. In fact, that you would see with the TZD. In fact, it induces weight gain even though you're taking a TZD. So I, I like this combination, and it's incredibly effective in my uh, diabetic patients, particularly the new onset ones.
1: Well, you know what, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, between the I mean, the metformin and the exenatide or bieta, I mean, there you're going to get weight loss, no hypoglycemia, and a very good mechanism. Uh, the pyoglitazone, I mean, really the only downside would be what most prescribers know about is the potential for some weight gain. Um, and, you know, if someone are, already has a weak heart and a low ejection fraction, then you know, you have to be careful there. But one thing, uh, Ralph, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that sulfonylurea should be as one of the first line therapies once a patient fails metformin on the uh, consensus statement.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. I haven't used the cell urea. It must be close to five years now. These drugs and, you know, uh, all of the references, uh, there are about 12 of them, are provided in my Banting lecture, uh, have clearly been shown not to preserve beta cell function. They look good in the first year, year and a half, but after the first year, every study with a cell urea has shown progressive decline in beta cell function. So you get this false sense of security that, yes, uh, the hemoglobin A1C drops because you stimulate insulin secretion. What's really important is not stimulating insulin secretion, is preserving the health of the beta cell. And unfortunately, beta, health, beta cell health continues to deteriorate even though you may see an increase in insulin secretion and a drop in the A1C.
1: Yeah, and certainly the the ADOPT trial is is the one that I think most of us know about. clearly showed they work fast, but they also fail the quickest. Well, what do you think about um, the FDA regulation that we have to prove cardiovascular safety with these agents? Because I know the rosiglitazone issue that came out in New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago. Uh, what's your feeling uh, on, on that issue?
2: Well, you know, I'm... I'm pretty shy, quiet, and reserved, and I don't speak my mind. (laughs) In my opinion, that's an absolute disaster. Uh, When your glucose goes up, people develop eye, kidney, and nerve damage, and there's an enormous amount of morbidity and mortality that's associated with this, particularly the people who develop uh, end-stage renal failure. So we need to be able to have drugs that lower glucose for the sake of preventing the microvascular complications. We need uh, maybe a different set of drugs to uh, reverse uh, many of the risk factors for macrovascular complications, the two most important being uh, dyslipidemia and hypertension. But I don't see any reason why a drug which is approved for lowering glucose to prevent microvascular complications has to be shown to be effective in decreasing cardiovascular events and require these enormous studies.
1: Right on, Ralph. And I think many drugs are being delayed uh, that they could be helping people with diabetes. And I want to start a movement. I want, I want no new cardiology drugs until they've proven that they don't affect the glucose. <laughs> I like it. Well, I would like to thank our guest, uh, professor of medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas, Dr. Ralph DeFranzo. Ralph, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. It's a pleasure having you.
2: Well, I'm glad to be able to join in with you. You do a great job in everything. So uh, I'm glad to be part of your team. Thanks, Ralph. Okay, ciao.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash D-I-A. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at ReachMD.com.
3: Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here <laughs> and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes, Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And, like many of my type 2 diabetes patients, that's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP 1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP 1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. <laughs> yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com DIA.